Just a reminder that Big Mood, Little Mood with Daniel M. Lavery happens twice a week. Slate Plus members get an additional mini episode or Little Big Mood every Friday. Sign up now to listen at slate.com slash mood. Big Mood, Little Mood. I'm your host, Danny Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is Ben Miller, a historian and co-host of the podcast Bad Gays, along with Hugh Lemmy. Ben and Hugh have also recently published the book Bad Gays, A Homosexual History. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. And our book, I should say, is now available for pre-order in paperback. Um, And if you pre-order it, you get a free ebook right away, which is very exciting. That's everything. Uh, I'm very excited. I hope we can churn out some more Bad Gays by the end of this episode. And as you know, uh, enjoy listening to Bad Gays very much. So it's also a real delight to be doing a podcast with someone whose podcast I regularly listen to, which is not a common occurrence. It is nice to be on a podcast that I regularly listen to, which is also not a common occurrence. And also, I should say, Danny gave us some of the most constructive and really deep feedback we've ever had. And we had some really good conversations. And I think what we've done since has been really informed by this conversation. Since I thank you for not only being a listener, but also being someone who, like actually a number of people that has frankly astonished and moved me, being not just a listener, but someone who actually is willing to share a lot of their thoughts and feelings about stuff that we're doing great and stuff that we're not doing great. That's really shaped the show um, and and the whole project. So, well, to that I can only say, "Aw shucks," because I get real folksy when I feel abashed. But also, that that means a great deal to hear, because you know, as as I'm sure you know, it is often very easy to either say something sort of dismissive about someone you don't know who has said something you disagree with, or to praise your friends. And anything besides those two things doesn't always come naturally. And so genuinely something that I appreciated about that conversation was a real opportunity to speak carefully and rigorously uh, with people I admired and respected and have a really useful, productive conversation. Um, but what's better than that when you put it that way? I mean, <laughs> you know, but I just I, I think I'm I'm very for all that I don't want to say, like, it's too easy to criticize on social media nowadays. I do think for me, at least, it's often very easy to just like lie back and bitch about something in the far distance or to then totally turn off any critical thinking for people I care about and say like, you're a genius, you're the best, you're God in his heaven. And it's actually often very useful to move away from those two modes of engagement uh, because they don't really help anyone on either side. Moving away from those two modes of engagement is also what bad gaze is all about, kind of. I mean, we're looking at people who are, our brief is evil and complicated queer people in history, um, Mm -hmm. which Sometimes we're really on that evil spectrum. You know, sometimes it's someone like Ernst Rehm, who is one of the first openly gay politicians, but also literally a founding member of the Nazi party, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Not particularly looking for redemption there. Um, But oftentimes it's people who are genuinely quite complicated and we are trying to have a kind of more interesting and more grown up and more useful conversation about queer public history than either your faves are problematic, or Mm -hmm. here's your top 10 list of Pride Month heroes. Exactly. Um, Because 
those two modes, as you just said, are not always the most useful. And I think especially in a heated discursive moment that is a heated discursive moment for really good reasons, Mm -hmm. it's been really, I mean, I've had some people who maybe tend to think more in that you can't, uh, everyone's too critical on social media these days way, ask me, well, haven't you, how have you not been, I, 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 God, I can't say the word canceled, but how, like, how haven't Hmm. you been, how haven't you gotten this kind of feedback or whatever? And I always say like, well, like, but that's part of what we're doing is acknowledging that there is a reason that this discursive climate is heated, right? That these problems that people are describing are real, that any human being who lived in a time that is not recognizable to ours probably did things and behaved in ways that we have ethical problems with to some extent or degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and that part of thinking about history is also trying to be a little bit more rigorous and critical about our own standpoint and knowing, I mean, the the great humiliation of history is that you're constantly dealing with people who are completely convinced that they are operating in ways that are ethical or fair or whatever, and then constantly confronted with how obvious it is to you that the ways that these people are behaving is not ethical or fair or anything else, which means that there's probably things that we are all doing that will be looked at by people years hence and considered just unspeakably, obviously stupid and wrong. And that's really important to think about, like to look at history, not just for heroes and not just to prove how much better we are, but Mm -hmm. to try to ourselves feel ethically implicated by what we're talking about, right? When Ernst Rehm, that gay Nazi, talks about and articulates kinds of mask-for-mask desire that are frankly extremely congruent with the ways that many people that I know speak about their desires, who are not Nazis, right? But that should make us uncomfortable. Doesn't mean that the people that I'm talking about are Nazis, but it means that we should be uncomfortable and think more about that. Yeah, and I think part of what can be so useful in thinking about uh, and discussing the dead is there can be a an unrushed and unhurried sort of sense of engagement, which is we don't need from them the same things we might need from the living. And so there's an opportunity to turn things over and to reflect on them. I'm speaking less now of Nazis, of course, uh, without having to feel either like I have to make a judgment call about this person one way or the other, which is, you know, they're dead. Their ability to affect the world around me is at best quite limited. And so I think there's often, at least in me, I, I know that I've moved away from a sort of like earlier, I, I sort of associate it with like the early aughts, but who's to say kind of relationship to to history, which is to like have this very over the top emotional reaction of like, this is right or this is wrong and and get a little bit that out of my system. Like, can you believe these historical figures aren't like me right now? And say, of course not. That's where we begin. Um, and so I think that can be a really useful way of uh, beginning to think about the world and an opportunity for slowness that I don't always get in in other areas of life. And that is a very meandering way of trying to like shepherd us towards our first question, which I know you and I were chatting about briefly before we started recording, but it's a sort of timeless question of like, can I give my boyfriend drugs? Um, and there's this I live on the in, one I live hand, in Berlin. I've heard this question so many times in so many different forms. Right. And so on the one hand, like this is coming from a very like clearly concerned, like thoughtful, probably overly thorough person. But I, I do also want to just be able to like 
on the one hand, it's great to think carefully about this kind of stuff. It's great to take things slowly. And on the other hand, like there's a wonderful and rich tradition of boyfriends giving their boyfriends drugs. Um, and if you decide to join that great group, uh, you will be far from alone. So with that being said, I will read our first letter and I'll have you read the second one and so on and so forth. The subject is lost in transition. I'm a trans guy who has been medically transitioning for about five years. I recently started dating another trans guy who came out last year, but hasn't been able to access HRT yet because of his immigration status and lack of public health insurance. We live in Canada. He's on a wait list for Planned Parenthood, but it will be over a year until they can see him. I've been mulling over whether or not to just give him some of my testosterone and help him start transitioning now. I do have enough for both of us. I'm all for DIY transition, but I feel weird about it in this circumstance. I've given away extra vials of tea before, but only to people who have already been on it and can't get a refill. My boyfriend's strong preference is to go the formal route and get blood work, informed consent, and his own prescription. He's never asked me or his other trans friends for testosterone, and he hasn't tried to buy it on the black market. It would surely be gray, right? Like, I don't know that we're calling it black market. Like, you can buy tea from cis guys at the gym if you hang out at the right gyms. Let's call it the gray market. Yeah, the, uh, the the cisgendered male-to-male transsexual. Many such cases. Many such cases. Pick a gym. Uh, but I asked him, if I gave you tea, would you take it? And he said yes, although he definitely understands my apprehension and isn't pressuring me. My main concern is that he won't have an unbiased provider to give him medical or psychological support. I also feel like it has the potential to shift the power dynamic in our relationship where I become his de facto healthcare provider and transition expert. What should I do? Well, have you tried eroticizing it? Sorry, like I don't want to immediately jump to just like joking, but it's like, yes, it's good to think about potential, uh, you know, risks that you run with the DIY route, but it's like, oh no, I'd be my boyfriend's de facto healthcare provider and transition expert. That would shift our power dynamic. And it's like, well, that sounds pretty fucking hot. Have you tried using him as a human footstool and telling him he can only earn his testosterone if he's done about eight hours a day? Like, go nuts. Yeah, I mean, first disclaimer, um, I am not a person of trans experience. um, And so anyone listening to this should take my advice knowing that. I would say that my initial thoughts are only these. One, this situation that the letter writer indicates he has enough for both of them? Is that he has enough of both of them for a year? If there's some delay with Planned Parenthood, like, is there some moment when I have enough for both of us, that status might change. And you might suddenly be faced with choices that they, you then have to figure out. And it sounds like the letter writer is pretty familiar with different ways of getting tea. And it doesn't seem like that would be an issue, but it's worth at least naming that. And it also might be worth just I mean, I don't know how long this relationship has been going on. I don't know if these power dynamics have to do with worry about like, would a potential breakup mean my boyfriend suddenly forcibly detransitioning, which is an an obviously horrible thing. I know couples with mixed immigration statuses who are in visa marriages that they, that are representative of real relationships, but that were entered into maybe earlier than a marriage commitment might've been entered into if there was no visa situation. And almost all of them have made some kind of deal where they basically said, look, even if we break up, we're not going there. We are deciding now that the immigration status is something that is going to outlive our relationship if it ever comes to that. And it may be worth just like having that brief conversation. Other than that, like go for it, eroticize it. DIY transition is something that many friends of mine have done. And I have not heard 
many regrets. And I've heard a lot of people talk about profoundly joyful experiences of experimenting with tea, transitioning with tea, playing with different kinds of non-binary ways of being with tea or with estrogen. And yeah, I think that even the writing of this letter to me indicates that this is someone who is thinking about this enough and with enough skill and depth that I can't understand. I really can't see the downsides of this, I guess, of giving the tea if he wants it, you know. Yeah. You know, again, there is a, a rich history of DIY transition. It is not without risk, but I believe that the letter writers are probably also aware of that. And so the risk of starting a testosterone regimen is not necessarily a risk that everyone's going to want to be comfortable with, but I can certainly say I've done it. I've been on both sides of the aisle. I've mailed testosterone to Canada and then afterwards looked up how illegal that was and was like, I'm glad I looked it up afterwards. And I think it's great. And so I think maybe I also want to start from, you don't have to make a footstool out of him. You know, you say, my main concern is that he won't have an unbiased provider to give him medical or psychological support. Gently and with respect, I don't think a lot of people have that anyways. And certainly if he goes to Planned Parenthood in a year, it's going to be like a at best 20 minute conversation with like a nurse practitioner who's like, hey, I printed out the like pamphlet from the University of Toronto's informed consent uh, list of things testosterone does. I'll leave you alone in this room to read it and then come back and you can tell me if you have any questions. We'll order a blood panel and that's it. So if you're thinking like, oh man, there's going to be this like amazing, supportive, expansive attention he'll be getting. I mean, I know Canada has better healthcare than we do, but like it's not like some, you know, brilliantly trained endocrinologist slash GP who's going to be coming in and like walking him through every single step of the way. It's going to be somebody who has like eight other appointments to see that day and hands you that pamphlet from the University of Toronto. Like it's stuff you can absolutely access on your own. So you're in kind of a nice position because, as you say, your boyfriend sounds like willing to wait a year. He's not like, man, if I can't access testosterone right now, I'm just absolutely going to lose it. So by all means, I think, Ben, what you said earlier is is good to bear in mind. Maybe you have enough now, but if if in a few months, you know, you were having trouble getting a refill of your own or there was like any sort of difficulty with your prescription that could potentially change and in that position it might be difficult. Again, that's just like on the list of possible risks. So I would encourage you to talk it over with one or two other friends outside of your relationship. And then if you are going to do it, maybe consider just like setting aside a supply for him that would get him through the next year and just give it to him. And like that way you're not like dosing it out every couple of weeks. And then that doesn't give you the option of like, oh man, if we break up and I have a bunch of tea, but I don't really want to see him. It's like, he's already got it. It's not a big deal. But again, that sort of assumes you've got a bigger stockpile of it than I imagine you do have. So maybe that doesn't even make a lot of sense. But basically I would say you can do it. You certainly don't have to. If you decide to, I would encourage you to Google Aaron's informed consent map. That's Aaron, E-R-I-N. And that's like a list of all the informed consent clinics. It's like a working map. Um, you might, if you're close to the American border, want to try popping into an American Planned Parenthood and seeing if you can get a walk-in appointment. I would also encourage you to check out DIYHRT.wiki. That's DIYHRT.wiki forward slash transmask. 
and there's a sort of like basic descriptor of like a dosing table for traditional initial doses for testosterone, depending on whether you're using cypionate or enthanate. Enthanate, I always say that messed up. Um, and then there's also, I would encourage you to look up like informed consent guides from either the University of Toronto or I think Vancouver also has one out. You can also just Google hormone guide FTMs. Um, there's usually a couple of like freely shared PDFs. There's one from Boston University. There's one from UCSF. It's an overview of what you can expect from masculinizing hormone therapy, potential risks. You can also, if you have to order a blood panel yourself, like you can go to your GP and say, I want to get my testosterone levels checked. I want to get my lipids checked. I want to get a metabolic panel. Those are usually the things that they call for when you start hormones. And again, look into what are potential risks that we should be aware of and are we willing to take those risks and then go from there. But, you know, sorry, this was a very long way of saying like, yeah, do drugs. Yeah. I mean, the I don't think it was long-winded at all because you were also giving vast quantities of informed and useful resources that contain a lot of the medical knowledge that I certainly don't have the expertise in. Um, the only place uh, we're looking back over the letter, I even have something resembling a second thought, is this phrasing, he's never asked me or his other trans friends for tea, and he hasn't tried to buy it on the black market, but I asked if I gave it to you, would you take it? The writer asked. And this is not to say, I think it's pretty obvious or should be obvious from a trans-affirming place that if two trans people are in a relationship with each other, they're going to discuss in a supportive and encouraging way different kinds of transition. But just to make sure that starting this DIY is something that he really wants and doesn't feel as though he not needs to, but just, just making sure that it's something that he really, really wants to do in the DIY way, even though it's quite clear that it's something that he wants to do, period. Um, and then, yeah, go for it. I'm too much of a historian not to say this, but I'm really looking forward to people listening to the show may know who Jules Gill-Peterson is. Um, I know you know Jules Gill-Peterson, uh, but she is, a, I think, one of the smartest historians working and is a trans historian of trans history. Uh, and is working on a project about the history of DIY transition and has had some really smart things to say about that in writing and is just, if there was anybody who was listening who wasn't so familiar with the conversation about DIY transition and like its history and why it's a thing and how people think about it, I think she's a really good place to start reading because she's really smart and a really good writer and has really brilliant informed things to say about the history of trans healthcare, both in and out of clinics. Yeah, and to that end, I would also recommend, um, I think The Independent last year ran an interview with one of the women who used to run the Orkey Barn. I, I imagine if they're in the sort of like Pacific area of Canada, the letter writers might be already aware of the Orchiectomy Barn that ran between 2004-2006 in the American Pacific Northwest. And it was just some trans women running a DIY orchiectomy uh, surgery out of a barn. And so that's a fascinating, fabulous story to check out. Um, it's, she also talked about it on the podcast Totally Trans back in 2020. Um, there's an interesting history. But yeah, I, I mean, I just like hormonal transition is pretty common at this point. It's pretty like well understood. The risks are there, but they're not as high as many other uh, DIY hormonal things that people might choose to do. 
or drugs that people might choose to do. And I think uh, it's absolutely a viable option. Absolutely. As Ben, you were saying, check in with your boyfriend. If he's genuinely like, I'd rather wait a year, that's fine. But there's no reason he should have to, frankly. And like the information's out there. Right. And also the history of healthcare in any kind of minoritized or marginalized group is full of DIY, right? Like the really crucial, many of the really crucial interventions in the feminist reproductive care movement of the 1970s had to do with people either performing abortions or teaching other people how to perform abortions or spreading information about how to safely perform abortions. Um, I was once in a seminar with the really brilliant feminist historian, Linda Gordon, and this was in 2012. And she basically said, so within the next 10 years, the Supreme Court is going to overturn Roe v. Wade. So we are now, instead of having a history session today, I'm going to teach you all how to give an abortion. Um, I still have my notes, but it was really, her point was basically like, there has always been a history of these necessary and important medical procedures, which have risks like other medical procedures, but many of them can be done in an informed way and in a way that is often better than doing nothing by people who are not professionals. And to say that and to advocate for that and to talk about how people have done that is not to say that people shouldn't have access to healthcare professionals to give them all different kinds of supportive and affirming and informed care. Uh, but it is to say that we don't live in that world. And there are matters that we have to take into our own hands sometimes. And there are ways of doing that that are not impossible. Yeah. It's not the same as like driving down the freeway at 80 miles an hour without a seatbelt on. Right. Or without a license um, or performing open heart surgery at home. Right. Which is not something that I would suggest anyone try. But many of these things are not are not at that degree of of difficulty and are things that people can can and should be doing if that's what makes sense for them and if they understand what's going on and it really seems like these people do my um last suggestion letter writer would be on that one website i had mentioned diyhrt.wiki they also have a um link to different injection supplies specifically in canada and most of them go to lifesupply.ca so that's where you could also pick up um extra in uh, syringes drawing and injecting needles i imagine you're already fairly familiar with the injection process if you've been transitioning for five years but i would certainly recommend that your boyfriend learn subcutaneous injections i think that's the easiest and best way to do it. And so I'm assuming you're not like sharing gel with him, obviously, then you don't need to worry about injection stuff in in that case. But again, like that stuff about like, I want him to have medical and psychological support. A year long waiting list is not fucking supportive. You know, that's not trans affirming. I realize that there's not like an individual bad actor at that Planned Parenthood. I'm sure everyone there is doing their fucking best, but a year long waiting list is not good medical care. Um, and it's absolutely good, beautiful, meaningful, appropriate for someone to try to get that from the community. And again, if you're worried that it's just you and him, you know, talk about it with your other trans friends, ask around, let people know what you're doing, ask for their shared expertise, ask for their tips, ask for, you know, where's a good place to get a sharps container, except you already have one, I'm sure. So the information is out there, bring your community into the process, give your boyfriend drugs, it's fun and sexy, and have a blast. Give your boyfriend drugs. Give your boyfriend drugs. Signed, sealed, and endorsed. As long as he's up for it. And that's the that's the official line on this show. So I look forward to getting a handful of weird emails about this. Mm-hmm. 
Ben, would you mind reading our second letter? Not at all. Subject, it's not in the stars. I'm a secular person who tries to be very live and let live when it comes to matters of faith, religion, and spirituality. However, I have trouble being chill when it comes to astrology, specifically when people want to read my birth chart or things of that nature. It makes me uncomfortable, like I'll be judged for things that aren't, in my point of view, real and definitely are not in my control. This is difficult because people do not like when I try to politely decline giving them the information they need to do astrology about me in a way that is different from, for example, saying I don't go to church. How do I balance being polite and accepting of others while trying to recuse myself from being part of their astrological inquiry? Is is a uh, like astrological conversation? Is that a big thing in Berlin? Do you do you run into that often? It is, but there is a really different valence that it all has. It's really funny. Um, the kinds of conversations about astrology and magic, both with and without the K at the end, um, that I'm familiar with and tarot, right? That I'm familiar with from like Anglophone queer contexts. It's this very like lefty progressive coded thing, and in Germany. It's really not, there's a real link between certain kinds of esoteric and occult practice, vegetarianism in in certain flavors, biodynamics in certain flavors, like Rudolf Steiner, Waldorf stuff in certain flavors, and certain flavors of the right and the far right, right? Like the the anti-mask protests in Germany and the anti-vax protests in Germany were full of people who are from what's here called the Ezo, uh, like as an esoteric movements. And so the German lefty progressives often have this extreme suspicion, this very like Theodore Adorno suspicion of all of this, and just think it's a somewhere between a complete waste of time and proto-fascist, damaging, scary. Yeah. So it's really, these conversations are kind of different and, and, and often operating on two very different tracks because Berlin is a city that exists in English and in German. And those are not always worlds that are always in as much conversation with each other as some of us would like them to be. But in terms of this question, I don't know. I don't think you need to tell I me, mean, presumably when we're talking about the information they need to do astrology about me, which is a phrase that I adore, you're doing astrology about me. I don't think that you need to tell anybody the time and place of your birth. I think that's pretty personal information, and it should be possible to just say, no, thank you. And if you know that they're doing astrology, because that's the reason why people are asking for the time and place of your birth, it's probably astrology or identity theft, you can just say, I think I really would rather that you not read my birth chart right now, and I would rather not share that information with you. But yeah, I, I, I understand, I really do understand the reluctance of this person. And I also do know people who, I mean, there is a, there is a flavor of astrology that I am amused, find amusing to talk about. I, I also find tarot very interesting because tarot for me feels much more like a, a series of rich symbols against which we can project our own questions. And any abstract field of symbols against which we pro- project questions will probably give us a way of thinking about the questions differently. But there is a there is a kind of astrology that is very like, oh, because your seventh house is in Venus, that means that you're going to la, 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 la. Um, and I do see why that would be creepy and off-putting to hear at parties from people that you've just met. Yeah, no, I, I think 
obviously lots of things are this, but I think astrology is really up there in terms of being just completely context depending. I've had conversations with people who are interested in astrology that have felt totally generative, interesting, delightful, and are like a fun framework for thinking about people and and types of impulses and ways of connecting. And I've had conversations that just felt totally tiresome and off-putting, up to and including even sort of just like, this feels like a weird grudge you have against the idea of a person who was born in this month. And I don't understand that. So sometimes these conversations are fun and sometimes they're awful. And it's just, it's it's nice to be able to have a way that's like, this is not for me. I don't want to discuss this. That's not like coming down hard on people or saying like, you're stupid for liking this. It's just like, I, I don't want to do this. I don't want you to say that my not wanting to do this is really indicative of my astrological sign and that it's really nice to head that off at the pass if you feel like that's coming. And so I just think saying like, oh, actually, I don't do that is is the best way to just make it clear. Like, I don't participate in that. That's not my thing. I don't want to hear you say why you think it's not my thing. I just want us to move on and have a different conversation. And like, again, not to make too much of a thing out of it, because most of the people I know who like astrology have like tend to be trans. But at least for me, I tend to like sometimes bristle at it a little bit because like I don't want to hear any any other shit about how the condition under which I was born decides who I'm going to be later in life. Like my my whole thing <laughs> with regards to transitioning is not being into that kind of thing. So again, not that like oh, caring about star signs is transphobic. It's not at all. I just mean like my, that's my sort of gut reaction to it. It's just like, no more, I don't want to hear any other shit about my birth. I'm done. Yeah, and I think there's also, I mean, you, letter writer, are under absolutely no obligation to discuss any kind of religious or spiritual practice with anyone at any time. But what I like about I don't do that is it also gives you, if you don't mind hearing them talk about some aspect of it that is important to them or that has helped them understand themselves, but it's not about you. That's also something that you can indicate and you can have that conversation if you want to, or if you don't, you don't have to. But that's also an option that's available to you if you're clear about your boundary, about not wanting to share what is, as I said, pretty personal information, your birth, time, and exact location with anyone really at any time. And it's just, it's difficult, right? Because I think astrology can be an interesting way of thinking about people if you have like the right attitude towards it. And it's totally unnecessary for thinking about people. You don't have to do it at all. So, uh, you know, sometimes you hear people, again, sometimes kind of jokingly, but sometimes kind of not say like, actually, astrology is bad because it's technically kind of transphobic because it cares about like the circumstances under which you were born or like people who don't like astrology don't really like women or queer people because they're just like sexist. And like you, you get the sense that when people say this, they're kind of aware that they're comically overstating things, but they also kind of believe it. And so I just think it's also it can become this very heated sort of indicator of like, do you like this certain subset of people or are you open-minded versus are you like a spoil sport or the kind of guy who says devil's advocate stuff? Um, and I think it's really helpful to just remember like, it's just what it is. It's just astrology. It's not queerness. It's not transness. It's not womanness. It's not any of those other things. It's just astrology. And if somebody wants to join in and talk about it, it can be a lot of fun. And if someone doesn't want to, it's no good. It's sort of just like if somebody says they don't like tea, you don't try to convince them how great, I mean, to drink this time, um, you don't try to convince them that they should change their mind. Even though tea can be delicious, you just 
you know, note that and don't offer it to them again. And so. Well, you would say that, Danny, you're a Taurus, but you know, I, I don't know if you're a Taurus and. I'm a Sagittarius. And again, like, I don't mind. It's fine talking about a little bit. Me too. But when I'm tired of it, I'm done. I am also a Sagittarius. Fantastic. What, what time of November is that for you? December. It's a December time. It's a mid-December <gasps> time. Oh, it crosses the months over. It does cross the months over. That's exciting. I'm a late-ish Sagittarius. Yeah, see, and like right now I'm like, this is fun. I'm totally in the mood for it. I don't care at all. And then if you asked me like a different day of the week, I'd be like, fuck you, that's none of your business. The most red I have ever felt was one time I was at a party with my ex-boyfriend and a bunch of architects, and they were talking about architecture. And... Mm -hmm. I am not an architect, so my contributions to this conversation were limited. And the person who hosted the party had a book of birthdays, and I opened up the book to my day, and the first sentence was, you have realized that by sharing what seems to be personal information about yourself, you are able to create a cloud of squid ink that will forever disguise the real you from others. And I have not stopped thinking about that sentence ever since. That is really something. I yeah. slammed the book shut. I put it back on the shelf and I'm still not over it. And uh, someday that book, she will pay for what she did to me. <laughs> that is the rudest anyone has ever been to me at a party, but also extremely accurate. That is incredible. I'll share another, not an astrology story, but a tarot story. My friend Sholem was once looking at, I'd pull his bread and he looked at it and he said, oh, Ben, as always, the problem is your id and your desire to please. I mean, that's the other thing too, right? It's like, you can always like implicate people in a way that makes them go, ugh, if you say something like, you know, oh, you always want to please people and no one really knows how insecure you are. People are like, oh my God, it's me. And it's like, yeah, that's humanity for the most part. Um, right. That's, I mean, that's... to be fair, to, to be fair, this was a, I'm not like angry at Sholem for saying that. I just want to make that clear. <laughs> Sholem is a lovely person, <laughs> but, and it was a, it was an accurate, it was accurate and deeper than that. But this is just to say that sometimes these conversations can be like, suddenly extremely personal in ways that I think the casualness with which some of this stuff gets batted around in certain social scenes doesn't always get, doesn't always acknowledge. Um, yeah. And so it's nice to, I think nice, even if you're the kind of person who likes to bat this stuff around to just think like, is this, if we weren't having this like queer people astrology tarot conversation, is this something I would say to this person? Like, are we friends like that? I think that's a big indicator is like, if I feel like I'm with someone I know fairly well and I'm excited about the way that this can sort of like playfully introduce new kinds of like intimacy or guesswork, then it's really fun. And if it's with somebody I don't know very well yet and it feels like it's sort of slightly pushy or like an attempt to like blow past a few of the like mild signs on the road to intimacy, that's when I get suspicious and my hackles come up. Right. Because getting to know people is a, a process for a reason. And that I think is it. I, I think that's just a really reasonable thing to say. Just stay pretty neutral about it. If somebody gets pushy, you can just do the sort of classic, like, why are you pushing this? And then they look a fool and you can let them flounder because it's weird to be pushy about this and you should just like stay calm and not give way. But I think, I think that's it uh, for this letter, for me at least. Then would you, as a close personal friend, be willing to tell me in advance some extra bad gay people who I might get on my ebook if I were to order the paperback copy right now? Yes, of course. Um, I can also say that anyone who is interested in this book can go to badgayspod.com slash book, and that's where they will find all the information about the book. But 
uh, you can tell that I've been saying badgazepod.com slash book into any microphone that anyone will put in front of me for the past year or so. Mm -hmm. The book came out uh, last June and it is half people that we have profiled on the show and it is half people that we have never talked about on the show and probably won't for at least a good long time because we want the book to be something that is different for people um, who have been the ones listening to us and supporting us throughout the show. For people who haven't heard the show, the way the show works is that either I or my co-host and co-author, the brilliant Hugh Lemmy, will narrate a life story with the other person kind of playing the role of audience and asking questions and making dick jokes and what have you. And then at the end, we have a conversation. And the book, we wrote it in the same way, even though the book has one voice. So half of the profiles were written by Hugh and half of the profiles were written by me. And then we kind of went over them and and took them back and forth and shaped them into this overarching narrative. And the the great thing about the show is that on any given week, we can go anywhere we want, right? Sometimes we're with gay Nazis. Sometimes we're with Liberace. Sometimes we're with one of my personal favorites, Joe Carstairs, who was a probably non-binary, eccentric British-American oil heir who raced speedboats before retiring to a private island on the Bahamas that they ruled as a god king, accompanied by their life partner who was a foot-tall leather doll named Lord Todd Wadley. I remember that episode uh, distinctly and the the like deeply. Also, they had an affair with Marlena Dietrich. So just like Marlena Dietrich <laughs> to Lord Todd Wadley, the doll. It's a real step down. I mean, but Todd Wadley was like there with Dietrich also. So maybe it was a three-way relationship, like a poly relationship with Marlena Dietrich and a doll. You know, I, I wouldn't put it past old Joe. And the like deranged like 19th and 20th century history of like titled British transmasculinity that like if you look with just one eye and kind of squint can kind of look like a certain type of like progressive empowerment. And then with any other eye is just like the most horrifying degree of literal entitlement and like hideous nation building. And it's just very like, oh, I wish you weren't my cousins. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so that's someone who's not in the book, uh, who I just, who I just, when you asked me about the book. Oh, have you guys ever done Michael Dillon? Speaking of terrible titled British transmasculinity? No, we haven't. But but tell me more about Michael Dillon because he's going on the list. Oh, At least definitely, the long yeah. list. Oh, you should, you should. So uh, he wrote a pamphlet on endocrinology in 1946. And this was like 10, 15 years after the goat gland craze, which I'm sure you're familiar with when there was like that one doctor who was just convinced that like transplanting goat glands into people would like rehabilitate them or like revitalize them, turn back the clock, uh, make them potent again if they were impotent, et cetera. And then, yeah, yeah. And then later, uh, Michael Dillon um, attempted to pursue like, I guess, a, a, a monk's career in different Buddhist communities in India where he was like sometimes welcomed and sometimes put off depending on how much he disclosed about his transition. Uh, but he also came out because uh, of uh, Debrett's peerage because he was the heir to his deceased brother's baronetcy. But Burke's peerage had only mentioned his birth name. And so he wrote to try to have it corrected. And then the press came out. So there was sort of those elements. And then he was, I think perhaps the first guy on record in the UK to get phalloplasty in like the early 40s. 
And then he also had a sort of like one-sided, unrequited love affair with Roberta Cowell, who I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she was an early trans woman uh, in in the UK who also was sort of like an early surgery pioneer in that country. And he he performed her orchiectomy and then like kept asking her out. And eventually she was like, stop fucking talking to me. So it's actually like, again, like in some ways it's this really like, wow, what a like beautiful like example of like T for T surgery. And then later it seems like he eventually like made such a pest of himself trying to like say like we should be in love that she was like, fuck off. And so you're like, but also he was like a boundary pushing creep. So there's similar elements of like complication here. But yeah, he's a fascinating figure. He wrote a sort of, bog standard mid-century transition memoir that was eventually published in like 2017 that's like sort of awful but sort of fascinating too i love mid-century transition memoir as a genre it is one absolutely and yeah so the the great thing that's an amazing story and we're absolutely that's absolutely already on the long list i added it to the long list while you were telling it but the great thing about the show is that every week we get to go to a completely different place And we do the show in seasons and we try to make the seasons a mix of places and also a mix of tones because sometimes you have to have incredibly serious conversations and sometimes it's nice to have less serious conversations. Um, The book, on the other hand, tells basically one story. And that story, as we say in the introduction, is the story of uh, how the white gay man happened, like how that accumulation of identity categories around this particular way of having sex with people and loving people happened um, and why that was a mistake and what we should do instead. Um, And so the book kind of traces the trajectory of the white gay man through all of these different systems of capital accumulation and colonialism. And if that sounds extremely academic and rigorous, it is a book with a lot of footnotes, but it's also a book with a lot of dick jokes and a book that is designed to try to have conversations that were, I think, already happening. Not I think, I know, were already happening in a lot of academic and activist places and really rich conversations and the kinds of conversations that you and I really liked having. Uh, But often when they were having in print were happening in ways that really led with big D discourse and theory. And we wanted to lead with biography and dick jokes, because that's always more fun. Ben, I'm so glad that briefly today you found yourself here with us, and I'm very much looking forward to the next season of Bad Gays. Yeah, so we just finished up our sixth season, which means that there are now, terrifyingly enough, almost 70 hours of Bad Gays out there in various forms. That's uh, six seasons worth of our episodes. Then there's also a handful of special episodes we've done with guests. Um, And so all of that is to be found at badgazepod.com or if you type badgaze into whatever podcast conveyance is conveying you the podcast that you are currently listening to. Amazing. Thank you so much, Ben. And I hope you have a great rest of your evening. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. 
Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice or conversations with our guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $15 for your first three months. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe you need some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our big mood, little mood listener question form or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. And I mean this with all compassion. Encourage your brother to talk to other people about his fear that if he stops talking to her, she will escalate her threats of self-harm. Because what he needs to be able to do is know he is allowed to stop talking to her and that is not damaging her. She might not like it. It might not be what she wanted. But while somebody in suicidal ideation or active crisis absolutely deserves help and support, they don't deserve continued access to someone who doesn't want to be in a relationship with them. That is not a treatment for depression or self-loathing or suicidal ideation. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.